It's the Victorian Variety Show. who does not claim some knowledge of the occult, or at least who has not traveled in the Orient, cuts but little figure in public estimation. Every now and then, some enterprising wizard rushes into print and exploits his weird adventures in Egypt and India, the birthplaces of magic and mystery. Every intelligent reader reads between the lines, but the extravagant stories of oriental witchery have their effect on certain impressionable minds. The magician Kellar is a reputed oriental tourist. He has journeyed, according to his own account, in the wilds of India, witnessed fakir miracles at the courts of Mohammedan Rajas, hobnobbed with Mahatmas in Tibetan lamaseries, and studied the black, blue, and white art in all its ramifications. In one of his recent advertisements, he says, success crowns the season of Kellar, the great American magician. His oriental magic, the result of years of original research in India, enables him to present new illusions that are triumphs of art and attract enormous houses, dazing, delighting, dumbfounding, and dazzling theater-goers. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, where we endeavor to leave no stone unturned in our examination of life during the Victorian era, which means that we sometimes need to look at a topic from several different angles and consider the more controversial side of phenomena which, on the surface, offer to entertain us and perhaps even help us temporarily escape from reality. My name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read is taken from the introduction of magic, stage illusions, and scientific diversions, including trick photography, a book that was edited by Albert A. Hopkins and first published in 1897. If you've listened to my two previous episodes, first of all, thank you very much. And second, you've heard me talk about this book quite a bit. My last episode is pretty much devoted to the book because I explain its origins and read a few descriptions of my favorite illusions, but I do like to change things up a bit. And for that reason, I originally considered not talking about it again in this episode. But as I explained in my previous episode, even though the Hopkins book was not the only book on stage magic published during the Victorian era, I believe it is one of the most comprehensive, not only in its descriptions of illusions and the settings in which they were performed, but also in its analysis of the cultural environment in which Western stage magic developed and the ones it borrowed from, rather heavily, as is suggested in the brief portrait of Harry Kellar that I just read. So it's probably good that I decided to take another look at the Hopkins book. Although, as you're probably thinking, this book portrays a white American showman borrowing from non-Western cultures 
in a much more positive light than many sources probably would today. Of course, some might call this type of description a so-called product of its time, as they might do with an illusion that I read the description of in my previous episode that was called After the Flood. That illusion featured, among other things, a, quote, beautiful Eastern woman, end quote, who would miraculously appear in the center of a wooden ark seconds after it was flooded with water by the highly capable illusionist, who, based on the accompanying illustrations, appears to be a white male with a fancy mustache. But even though I find the topic of stage magic endlessly fascinating and incredibly entertaining, and if you do as well, I don't intend in the slightest for this episode to take away from your appreciation of it. I definitely think it's necessary to acknowledge that Western stage magic borrowed rather heavily from non-Western cultures. And if we're going to call something a product of its time, we need to take a hard look at what was going on at the time. And during the Victorian era, one thing that was happening in a big way particularly in Britain and a few other European countries, was imperialism. Under imperialism, it was common for colonizers to make ample use of resources, whether it was raw materials or human labor that they came across in the colonies, while at the same time portraying those colonies in problematic ways. As we're about to see, the same applied in many ways to entertainment in general and to stage magic in particular. To briefly recap some of what I've discussed in my two previous episodes on Victorian era stage magic, many showmen during this time portrayed themselves as rational men of science, if you will, who had ties to scientific institutions, such as London's Royal Polytechnic Institution, which was a popular venue for magic lantern shows in the mid-19th centuries, and in a number of cases had backgrounds in a scientific field and maybe even a few inventions under their belts. One example whom I've talked about quite a bit was John Neville Maskelyne, who, according to Wikipedia, invented, among other things, a typewriter, the pay toilet, and a number of automata, including a whist player named Psycho, who wore a turban and an outfit traditionally associated with India, which I think definitely ties in with some of what I'm talking about this week. Maskelyne and his partner, George Alfred Cook, as well as Harry Houdini, were noted skeptics who publicly denounced the superstition of prior generations and debunked mediums and other spiritualists. A number of these showmen had well-publicized rivalries and accused each other of stealing tricks, which I think added to the mystique and very likely led to increased ticket sales. So, While I have no doubt that these men were fun to watch, it's also not hard to imagine that a number of them had pretty big egos and that the qualities that they emphasize are ones that traditionally have been associated far more often with men than with women, 
who, in terms of the occult, have traditionally been associated much more with witchcraft and mediumship than stage magic. So although there are and have been some successful female illusionists, during the Victorian era especially, you were much more likely to see a woman as a magician's assistant, maybe reclining in a wooden ark, letting the so-called master saw her in half or toss knives in her general direction, than as a show person in her own right. However, despite everything I just said about Victorian era showmen and their emphasis of science over superstition, it's important to recognize that they didn't do away entirely with the mystical. Rather, a number of them found a way to incorporate it into their acts through Orientalism, which, as defined by Edward Said in his book of the same name, is, quote, a way of coming to terms with the Orient that is based on the Orient's special place in European Western experience. The Orient is not only adjacent to Europe, it is also the place of Europe's greatest and richest and oldest colonies, the source of its civilizations and languages, its cultural contestant, and one of its deepest and most recurring images of the other. In addition, the Orient has helped define Europe or the West as its contrasting image, idea, personality, experience. End quote. I don't want to oversimplify this topic because it's so important and also broad, but a quick example from my own studies of art and literature from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, who I think of immediately because I've read a lot of his stuff, is Saki, aka Hector Hugh Monroe, a satirist who wrote a number of stories that mentioned things like Persian rugs, Japanese fans, and Chinese lanterns that were often found in the parlors and halls of British estates during this period. In a story called Reginald's Christmas Rebel, Monroe refers to this type of decor as, quote, old English fashion, end quote. In addition, there's no shortage of photos of people online, many of whom appear to be white, during this time in dress that's usually associated with Asia or the Middle East. The impression I always got when I saw stuff like this was that white Europeans saw this adoption of Eastern styles as a way to come across as worldly and, if they could afford it, well-traveled or as a way to spice up, if you will, clothing, decor, or some other art form that's sometimes seen as bland. And there's still plenty of this going on today. We usually refer to it as cultural appropriation. I think it's problematic not only because the appropriator is normally in some type of dominant position over the culture from which they're appropriating, but also because what the dominant culture chooses to appropriate often is either an inaccurate, incomplete, or both representation of the other. So even if a European or European-American thinks they're paying homage to a non-Western culture and portraying it in a positive way, they're still usually promoting a limited often stereotypical view of that culture. In the case of stage magic, 
It seems the Victorian era stage performers and many who followed realized that even if members of their audience appreciated all of the technological and scientific advancements that were made during the Industrial Revolution and beyond, that didn't necessarily mean that they wanted to abandon their fascination with the spiritual side of life and openly borrowing from cultures that were perceived as still having strong ties to the supernatural seems to have been a safe way for showmen to cater to their audience's spiritual side. It was common for stage magicians to use mysterious, quote-unquote, foreign-sounding incantations in their acts, such as abracadabra, as well as, quote-unquote, foreign props, ranging from swords and carpets to the oblong osier Indian basket that was mentioned in the Hopkins book, or an East Asian style palanquin, in which a person reclining on a covered platform is carried by poles on the shoulders of several men. In a journal article that I found on JSTOR called Magic Modernity and Orientalism, Conjuring Representations of Asia, Christopher Goto-Jones notes that some white showmen even performed as genies, yogis, sorcerers, and such, with American magician William Ellsworth Robinson being one prominent example. One quality that's often associated with stage magicians is patter, which is the dramatic, smooth way of speaking that accompanies the magician's handiwork and not only conveys their sense of mastery, but also helps them time their moves and control the audience's attention. But even though Robinson had impressive credentials that included an engineering background and collaborations with renowned showmen like the aforementioned Kellar and Alexander Herman, he hadn't been blessed with the gift of gab, you might say. So his early attempts to launch a stage career as himself fell flat. However, after witnessing Ching Ling Fu, a Chinese performer who became something of a hit in the States, despite the fact that he spoke very little English and thus had to conduct most of his act in silence, which Goto Jones notes contributed to Fu's, quote, oriental mystique, end quote. Robinson was inspired to reinvent himself as Chung Ling Su. This reinvention, which included a wardrobe that was more flamboyant than Fu's, allowed Robinson to take advantage of the public's fascination with so-called Asian mysticism, while at the same time not having to overcome his reservations surrounding public speaking. According to Goto Jones, Robinson's performance as Sue, quote, reproduced the kind of popular stereotype of the Orient that typified other popular entertainments of the time, such as the Gilbert and Sullivan comic operetta, The Mikado. His brash, colorful clothing and the twee mock Oriental music spoke directly to his audience's fantasies of the Orient allowing him to convince them, as if by magic, that he was the authentic article. His magic was exactly what they wanted to see from a Chinese magician, and this had nothing to do with his ethnic origin, nor even with the particular illusions performed. The key, which Robinson intuited as early as his first encounter with Ben Ali Bey, 
was the taste of the performance, the aura and atmosphere of the Orient itself. Which was more of a product of Orientalism than of anywhere in the actual Orient? End quote. So in some cases, you had white guys literally taking on the characters of non-white performers. And although I'm sure you can probably think of several other examples of this type of thing happening in Europe and the U.S. over the past 150 years or so, that doesn't make it any less disturbing. But in others, Western showmen seem to see the adoption of Eastern techniques as a way to pull off acts that would be scientifically impossible were they not illusions performed as part of an entertainment ritual. In Abracadabra, Alakazam, Colonialism, and the Discourse of Entertainment Magic, Aaron Stibbe talks about a pattern in which a Western stage magician borrows something from a non-Western culture and passes it off as magical, even if it's not considered magical in that culture. By doing this, the Westerner is able to carry out the impossible act even though Stibby acknowledges that much of the audience is aware that an illusion, and thus a deception, has taken place. Stibby's article references a number of contemporary examples, rather than examples from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And they don't really address whether Victorians were more willing or able to suspend their disbelief than someone watching, say, David Copperfield or Chris Angel today. However, Based on what the Goto Jones article says about the Indian rope trick, which started to become popular in Western magic shows in the early 1890s, it seems that audiences largely wanted to believe in it for some time. To perform this trick, a magician tosses a rope into the air, and it becomes stiff enough for the magician's assistant to climb it to the top. The assistant then might either climb back down or disappear. Goto Jones explains that when word of this magnificent trick began to spread, a number of Westerners claimed that they'd seen the trick performed on their travels in India, quote, creating a potent mix of imagery about the mysterious colonial margins of the British Empire, which itself seemed to provide an enabling condition for people to believe in the story, end quote. Around 1919, the Magic Circle, the prestigious London-based organization that is dedicated to promoting the advancement of magic, declared the trick a hoax, after which they started offering challenges to people who claimed that they could successfully perform the trick in quote-unquote natural conditions. Although when Arthur Derby, a British conjurer who performed under the name Karachi, offered to take them up on their challenge in 1935, the magic circle refused. Goto Jones suggests that they refused because there was doubt as to whether Karachi, who claimed to have learned the trick from an Indian soldier during World War I, could actually perform the trick, and that Karachi was basically trying to compete with them in the way that magicians tend to do as well as maybe adding a little Eastern mystique to his act in the hopes that it might be beneficial to his career, much as Robinson did. However, I 
don't really think that the main question here, at least not for our purposes, is whether the Indian rope trick or Karachi was a hoax. Rather, I think the point is more that India and the East had this magical aura projected onto it by the West. And personally, I wonder if maybe members of the Magic Circle and other Western performers felt a little threatened, you might say, by the prospect of being upstaged by non-white performers from the colonies. Goto Jones notes that, quote, in many ways, the occult committee of the Magic Circle was declaring war on Orientalism itself. Its implicit challenge was for someone to prove that being from India was in itself a condition of magical empowerment, that real magic really existed on the margins of empire. Against this, the magic circle stood as the bastion of modern magic, representing in its own society the techniques of modernity as applied to stage and entertainment magic and illusion. If the Indian fakir could really do magic that members of the magic circle could not, then maybe Orientalism was not a fantasy after all. Maybe the colonial margins really did sustain real magic. Perhaps Great Britain's much vaunted modernity was second best to magic after all? End quote. So, it can be argued that in the Victorian era and the decades since, an othering of Eastern cultures frequently occurred in the realm of stage magic. And a distinction was drawn between Europeans and European Americans who came from places where science and reason were portrayed as being at the forefront, signs of progress in the eyes of many, and those who hailed from non-Western countries were portrayed as magical and mysterious rather than rational. And as Stibby points out, rationality is often associated with superiority. As Stibby explains, quote, entertainment magic emerged during the late 19th and early 20th centuries when the British Empire stretched across more than 20% of the world's total land area. The discourse of entertainment magic evolved hand in hand with colonialism and played a role in distinguishing the culture of the colonized from the culture of the colonizer. In the service of entertainment magic, narratives were appropriated from all over the world, traveling back across space towards the imperialist center where they were exhibited as examples of irrationality." End quote. Stippy's article also goes into a little of something I said in my first episode on stage magic, that essentially the word magic is a very broad term and stage magic comprises a very small percentage of what falls under that umbrella term. And that furthermore, using the same term to define both traditional rituals performed around the world and a more recent art form that depends on some level of deception can further lead to negative depictions of the other. And in the West, unfortunately, there is usually not much effort made to educate people on the many different practices around the world that can be described as magic or to debunk the aura of mystery that surrounds it. 
even entertainment magic, which is probably the most familiar to the majority of Westerners, tends to be shrouded in secrecy because magicians don't want people to know how they perform their tricks. And their audiences aren't likely to make a critical distinction between the different practices that fall under the broad category of magic. After all, children make up a large percentage of the audience at many magic shows. And the majority of adults attend these shows either because their children are there or in the case of the bigger shows in places like Vegas that may not be child friendly. They want to have a good time. And on that note, I'm going to wrap up my examination of stage magic during the Victorian era and beyond here. Once again, I am not trying to turn anyone against stage magic, but I do think it's important to maintain a somewhat critical eye while looking at its history and to recognize that imperialism and racism can rear their ugly heads even when we're talking about topics that on the surface seem to be lighter. And although the two articles that I found on JSTOR by Goto Jones and Stibby, both of which I'll include links to along with all of the other sources that I used in the show notes, don't limit their examinations of stage magic to the Victorian era, I think they're helpful in that they emphasize just how influential the showmen of the late 19th and early 20th centuries were. And that even though we probably have way more advanced technology and magicians from a broader number of backgrounds and genders than ever before, for the most part, not much has really changed. But now, I would love to know what you think. You can email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at twitter.com slash Victorian Variety One. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can buy me a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 or leave me a tip either on my Linktree page, which I also have a link to in the show notes, or on the Good Pods app. I would also greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. And finally, I just wanted to take a moment to thank Lindsay and the Ye Old Crime podcast. I am a big fan of the show, and I had the opportunity to speak to Lindsay a few weeks ago and try to crack a couple of cramp words, which was awesome. I really hope we get a chance to do it again sometime. And if you'd like to find out how I did, I will include a link to that episode in the show notes as well, and I hope you'll check it out as well as other episodes of Ye Old Crime, because whether you're a fan of mainly Victorian history or just a history fan in general, there's definitely going to be stuff there that you find fascinating, because they cover a, real, a lot of really interesting cases. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed my three-part mini-series on Victorian-era stage magic. As you can probably tell, I really enjoyed researching this topic and putting these episodes together. 
I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode on a topic that's not related to magic. Although I'm going to warn you, I probably will want to revisit this topic again at some point in the future, but there's a lot of other stuff that I want to cover. But in the meantime, I'm going to close this out with a quote that I found in an 1893 article by Harry Kellar called High Caste Indian Magic, in which Kellar discusses some of the demonstrations that he saw of levitation and other illusions while he was in India in the 1870s and 1880s. I decided to take one more look at the Hopkins book to see if maybe there was a quote or another trick that I could leave you with. But then I saw that Kellar's article listed in the bibliography, and I thought that might be even better if I can find it online, which I did. I thought this quote was appropriate because on the one hand, I feel like Kellar is trying to show reverence in his description of these men. But at the same time, he is adhering to stereotypes about them, as well as the mysterious nature of Eastern magic. And also, I think, he makes it a point to emphasize his own skepticism. These fakirs, for that term does not imply a reflection upon their personalities or their methods, are very dignified men of patriarchal appearance with ascetic faces and long gray beards. All the skillful ones I have seen were quite advanced in years and were said to have spent their lives in study and in seclusion. It seems plausible indeed to believe their story that it is only after a lifetime of contemplation and study that they are admitted into the higher circles of the esoteric brotherhood whose seat is in the monasteries of Tibet and in the mountain recesses of northern Hindustan. They are quiet, suave, and secretive, and appear to attach an almost religious significance to the manifestations of their power. There is nothing inherently improbable in the theory that they are initiated into a knowledge whose secrets have been successfully preserved for centuries. That there is anything supernatural in their power, I would be the last to concede, for I have spent my life in combating the delusions of supernaturalism and the so-called manifestations of spiritualism.